immortal yet paraphrased words of Albus Dumbledore. Hope can be found even in the darkest of times if one only remembers to turn on the light. Hello and welcome to episode 5 of Turn On The Light. I'm your host, Louise Caudry, here to bring you some positive conservation stories. Uh, Especially in the world's current climate at the moment. Um, The past couple of weeks have been different. They've been odd ones. Um, I've been working from home since the 16th of March. um, And then a week later, um, the following Monday... Uh, the UK government announced that we are on lockdown, um, so we can only go out for essential supplies, uh, one form of exercise a day, um, and if you still have to work, if you're a key worker. Um, so yeah, it's been interesting. Um, it's been a bit of a different world, um, going slightly insane. Um, I definitely feel like I need a workspace to work in rather than at the kitchen table. Um, so it's been you know, a week of having to motivate myself um, to get stuff done in my job. But I have my health. I have a house that I can do that in. I am lucky enough to have a garden. um, And at the moment, my job is okay, So I can't complain. Um, And, you know, uh, warm thoughts. And I hope everybody else is doing okay. And to those vulnerable people, um, yeah, keep safe. Um, We got this. We'll come out the other end. It'll be okay. Um, But on the lighter side of things regarding uh, COVID-19, there have been some positive environmental impacts due to the reduced human movement um, in the world. Um, And I know some of this has been a bit of fake news. Um, There's been some images from of swans in the Venice canals, which uh, actually they already were in the Venice canals anyway, it's just in a quieter part of Venice. Um, so slightly infiltrated by fake news into the positive environmental stuff, but the canals themselves are cleaner. You can see shoals of fish now. You can see through the water because of the reduced um, tourism movement around Venice. Um, there's cleaner air above China. There's cleaner air above um, England even, which is being predicted by scientists. Um, and dolphins swimming in ports in Sardinia because their ports are basically empty. They're not really being sort of used anymore. So those little things are little positive rays. Um, and even in my own garden, you know, I, I went out to take Chewy, my dog, for a wee-wee this morning. Um, and you can really hear the birds um, in the garden, which you can't really hear because we're on a flight path. So you can always hear the aeroplanes and such going over. Um, so that's a really nice change as well. So yeah, I'm starting to see some lovely, you know, sparrows and blue tits in the garden um, and hearing their song, which is really lovely. Um, Actually had a parakeet in the garden the other day, which um, if you don't know, they do. There are many flocks around London, but they mostly stay in the bigger parks. Um, So it was really cool to have one in the garden Um, and a green woodpecker, which was just wonderful. Um, love them. Amazing creatures. Tried to get a photo. Very elusive. Didn't get one. Um, but just seeing it there was, was really, really lovely. Um, and of course, so many foxes um, coming in and, and playing in the garden, which is so sweet to see and having little naps on the table out there. And I mean, we had a lot of fox movement in the garden anyway, but it's sort of up to notch um, since things have been quieter. So there's some nice little positive takeaways from the situation. Um, And of course, I've heard people sort of saying, 
or poo-pooing taking positives from the situation because you know a lot of people are dying and a lot of people are being affected by this and I totally agree with that um but I also feel like it is human nature to find the positives in a bad situation um and so that's what I'm doing um and of course this is about positive vibes this whole podcast is about positivity so there you go um so yeah talking about some more fun stories that I've seen which is totally unrelated to COVID-19. I saw an article in Nature um, this week, um, and it's a little sort of throwback if you've listened to episode one um, in my interview with Jesse. We were talking about cephalopods and how cool and how intelligent they are. Um, So this story is about them. Um, Researchers have been analysing hours and hours of footage of gregarious Humboldt squid um, and have found that they greet each other by turning on bioluminescent internal organs. Like... Yeah, it's just like flashing the headlights (laughs) at someone, at one of their mates, like, oh, hey, flash, flash. Um, Yeah, so they they send signals to each other by combining bioluminescence and skin pigments, um, and then they dim that when they're pursuing prey. So a very clever system, um, and just something else that's really, really cool about cephalopods. Um, Gregarious, by the way, in case anybody doesn't know that word there um they're fond of company they like to be social they like to be in groups um which is cute also um and another amazing positive thing that i want to draw your attention to uh this week is our little this little podcast this little baby podcast turn on the light was mentioned um on another incredible podcast um called speak up for the ocean blue with the host andrew lewin who is a marine biologist um which just blew me away. Um, it was an episode actually about lonely conservationists. Um, Jessie from episode one, her her brainchild, her baby community, um, or not baby community at all anymore, like a massive community of conservationists over the world who are connecting with each other and feeling less lonely. Um, that was that organisation was spoken about um, on the latest episode of Speak Up for the Ocean Blue podcast. Um, and also then my little podcast was was mentioned um and i think this was all thanks to um a mongo bay article which was talking about lonely conservationists which i lent my little voice to um and answered a few questions for the author of that article um and yes a few of my quotes are in that article and of course i couldn't not mention the podcast (laughs) um and obviously its birth was in part thanks to lonely conservationists and sort of jesse bringing out that confidence in people again that you know you can pursue your dreams you are worthy of doing these things and you do have value so yeah so all around thanks to lonely conservationists and thanks to speak up for the ocean blue for for mentioning um this little podcast um and please go and listen to that one too there's tons and tons of content for you to listen to um a lot of it is in really lovely bite-sized pieces um so the episodes range from, you know, like 40 minutes to 10 minutes. Um, so, you know, if you're quickly hopping in the shower, if you're quickly doing some washing up, um, if you're going to pop out for a run, the one ex- piece of exercise that you can do a day. Um, yeah, stick on one of these episodes. Um, you'll definitely learn something and it will make you feel warm and fuzzy um, about marine life. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes to the Spotify page for Speak Up for the Ocean Blue, but it's also available on you know, pretty much any streaming service where you get your podcasts. Um, I personally use Google Podcasts. It's on there. Um, It's on Apple Podcasts. Um, Yeah, just search Speak Up for the Ocean Blue where you find 
your podcast and and you will find it um so that was a really highlight of my week um and that's that's all my good news um in the little intro there uh, so now we're moving on to talk about what this episode talks about um so this episode is a little bit different concerning the species um it's not one species in the spotlight um it's actually an entire ecosystem so today i'm going to be talking about a whole coral reef and that coral reef is the cabo pulmo coral reef um in mexico and it's returned to health after de- de- devastating human impacts Okay, so the Cabo Pomo Coral Reef. It has been noted as one of the most impressive successes in ocean conservation. Now, the Cabo Pomo Coral Reef exists just off Cabo Pomo, the town, on the east coast of Mexico's Baja California Peninsula, um, which if you've listened to the previous episode on the grey whale, um, we know Baja California to be a great spot for wildlife um, and for grey whales. Um, so that's where this coral reef is situated. Um, Cabo Pomo itself is a small old town um, and the coral reef is a very old coral reef off the coast of the town. Um, And it's actually one of only three coral reefs on the west coast of North America. Um, And it's about 20,000 years old. So a really impressive little piece of nature there that's been there for a very, very long time. Um, And John Steinbeck actually wrote about these reefs. Um, So the author John Steinbeck, he wrote Of Mice and Men um, and many, many other wonderful books, wonderful writer. Um, And he travelled to the Sea of Cortez in the 1950s. And in 1951, the log from the Sea of Cortez was published and he absolutely gushed about the Cabo Pulmo coral reef and the teeming life and the electric colours that you find there. Um, And this is his little excerpt of writing. The complexity of the life pattern on Pulmo Reef was even greater than at Cabo San Lucas. Clinging to the coral, growing on it, burrowing into it, was a teeming fauna. Every piece of the soft material broken off, skittered and pulsed with life. Little crabs and worms and snails. One small piece of the coral might conceal 30 or 40 species, and the colours on the reef were electric. Now, obviously, he speaks with such passion there about the life that he saw on these reefs. Um, And this was in the 1950s. So you can see at that point, it was an absolute smorgasbord of life. Um, But sadly, from the time that Steinbeck wrote that and conservation, conservation action taking place in the early 1990s, the reefs were very heavily overfished. Decades of overfishing and questionable fishing practices that were used to fish the reefs as well absolutely wreaked havoc and changed the reefs from colourful fish fish playgrounds to essentially wastelands where there was no fish um, and the colours were gone. So people actually started to notice this, um, especially the people living locally to the reef in Cabo Pomo. so the 120 people living there um, took notice of how their reefs were changing and how they had been devastated over the years. Um, and in particular, who took notice was a family called the Castro family. Now, this family were uniquely placed to tackle this devastation. 
on the reef. Um, the family had lived in Cabo Pulmo for over 100 years and had their own special ties to the ocean, which had always provided them with jobs and with food and, you know, with leisure time, of course, as well. Um, so it was in the late 1970s that Juan Castro Montaño took tourists diving on the reef. Um, and this experience itself did two things for him. It opened his eyes to what he described as the otherworldly beauty of life under the sea, as well as the devastation of the unsustainable fishing practices that were going on in the reef, um, boat anchors and pollution. So this sort of opening of his eyes, this these sights that he saw when he went down there, spurred three generations of the Castro family to come together and to, bring, to begin a grassroots conservation effort. So this family, the Castro family, and the majority of other local fishing families who they convinced to take part in this movement, they lobbied their local government, increasing the awareness and attention to the ecological needs of their reef, their national treasure. And their efforts uh, eventually paid off. In 1995, Mexico's state of Baja California Sur officially established the Cabo Pulmo National Park, a marine protected area covering 27.5 square miles. So it was just this family lobbying their local government and then lobbying the larger government to make this area protected, to do something about what was happening here before the reef just completely died and there was no chance of return. And they managed to do it. And this particular protections again around this reef is particularly special. Um, now, if we look at the whole of our oceans... Only 2% of the ocean is protected and 0.1% of that is free from activities like fishing and mining. So a very, very small percentage of the total of our oceans is actually protected from any sort of human money-making activity. In the Gulf of California, 5% of protected areas are no-take areas, so no fishing areas, like you don't take anything away from that protected area. Now... A little drum roll. At its founding, Cabo Pulmo was 35% no fishing, which to begin with is amazing. That achievement is incredible, just taking into consideration those figures that I just spoke about there. So on Cabo Pulmo Reef itself, 35% of it was classed as no fishing, um, no fishing zones from the beginning of its protection in 1995. And again... The Castro family and other locals from the town, they took more determined action, um, lobbying the government further. And following this, the no fishing area of the park was expanded to 100%. So 100% of the Cabo Palmo National Park is total no fishing zones. And that is thanks to the effort of these local people just going and saying, no, no absolutely not this is our reef we will protect this it needs protecting so make it a no fish zone and that's that is exactly what happened um and that's incredible right a hundred percent and we can tell from those figures only two percent of the whole ocean protected only 0.1 percent of that free from activities like fishing and mining that's an unheard of percentage to be protected um so well done to those guys and along with those protections for no fishing um, there's also stringent conservation practices enacted to protect the populations of fish and sea life that were able to rebound um, thanks to these protections 
and, and efforts were made um, to convert lo the local economy from fishing to ecotourism. Because, of course, we have to recognise that these families that were using the reef to fish from, they were going to be economically affected um, by not being able to do that anymore. So efforts were made to take them into consideration as well um, and to make sure that their economy was still stable, they still had jobs and their families were safe. So what happened after these protections were put in place? What came to pass in subsequent years is described as a remarkable recovery of the reef. So a study in 1999, that's just four years after the reef was made into the national park, um, it showed that medium-sized fish were once again populating the reef. Now fast forward a decade to 2009, and the biomass, which is the total amount of fish in that ecosystem, had exploded by, and this is insane, okay, right, get ready. So the total biomass on the reef from 1999 to 2009 had exploded by 463%. Totally exploded. Tons and tons of new fish being produced every year and not being taken by fishing vessels. So today... Cabo Palmo National Park is one of North America's three living reefs and is recognised as one of the most breathtaking dive spots on Earth. What you can find there now, you can find angelfish, Moorish idols, rays, moray eels, groupers, jacks, snappers, sea lions, turtles, a massive explosion in the population of bull sharks, and further offshore, you'll even get whale sharks and humpback whales. The reef is indeed a refuge for endangered gulf groupers, so it's got all of these incredible species there and is also a refuge for species that aren't doing so well elsewhere. The efforts to turn economies to ecotourism have been successful. Um, Cabo Pulmo National Park is now incredibly popular as a dive site um, for kayaking, absolute holiday hotspot for people wanting to see this beautiful, beautiful reef, absolutely teeming with life, going back to what John, John Steinbeck described in the 1950s. That is what people are seeing. Um, so most importantly, local families continue to be at the heart of the teeming, teeming reef, still including many members of the Castro family themselves. So many are boat captains, dive masters. Um, they work within the industries uh, for getting ecotourism in and for getting people in to spend their holidays there and to just spread you know, the beauty of this place and how incredible it is. Um, and many of the locals still work to enforce park regulations. Um, they'll share surveillance of the reef, what they see in the life there, the fauna. Um, they'll help to enforce protection of it and um, also uphold ocean cleanliness efforts. Now, the reef is so important and so successful that in 2005, it was named a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And in 2008, it was named a Ramsar International Wetland Site. So not only is Cabo Pulmo National Park 100% protected as a no fish, no take, no mining, no nothing of that sort area, um, it's also now a UNESCO World Heritage Site and a Ramsar International Wetland Site. And a little piece of, a little quote that I want to share with you. Um, so the lead author of the 10-year analysis study that I spoke about just a few minutes ago, um, the study in 1999 that looked at the fish on the reef, and then the study again 
um, in 2009 that looked at the explosion of biomass on the reef. So the lead author of that study is Octavio Abueto Aropeza, and he states that we believe the success of Cabo Palmo National Park is greatly due to local leadership, effective self-enforcement by local stakeholders and general support of the broader community. So there you have it. One of the most impressive ocean conservation stories ever. Thanks to caring local people working together for the benefit of everyone. And I think that's really important to think about that. We're all parts of the same machine, right? We're all pieces of the world. All of the pieces are strange and wonderful and we don't necessarily understand each and every one of them. But, you know, we are all part of the machine that makes everything go as it should. I mean, a lot of the time people don't equate humans and nature as the same or they don't speak about them in the same space or the same world like nature is separate to us and I think it's important to remember that we're not we are nature and we're all part of that one picture and we can all work together and we can all live together um and still have this like mutual symbiotic relationship where we're living with each other not stomping all over something <laughs> and I think this Cabo Pomo National Park is a really nice example of that local family realized what was happening here what people were doing to the reef um, and made steps to change it and they did and you know thinking about that one singular reef in that one ocean thinking about the bigger picture our oceans are actually just one ocean all of them are connected right so the positive impacts from Cabo Pulmo can spill into others, into other areas, into other reefs, if properly managed. And we can show from this story that depleted fish populations elsewhere can rebound. I mean, that figure, the 463% increase in biomass is just insane. Um, and if that's possible here, that's possible elsewhere. Um, so this success can spread positive impacts beyond the borders of its own and make changes worldwide. Okay, now for our fun section of fun facts. Uh, this is a little bit different as it's obviously the whole reef and not one particular species. Um, but the species that I mentioned that have flourished there, I'll tell you a fun fact about each one of those. Um, so number one is the Moorish idol, who I mentioned, the fish that are teeming on this reef, is Gil from Finding Nemo. Now many people think he's an angel fish, um, but no, he's not. He's a Moorish idol. Fun fact number two. There are over 100 types of grouper fish. And I shall now list them all. <laughs> Not really. Fun fact number three. Moray eels have two sets of jaws. The second one hidden away inside called a pharyngeal jaw. Imagine alien, how that little mouth shoots out of the mouth. That's about right. Fun fact number four. Bull sharks have the strongest recorded jaw strength at around 6,000 newtons at the back of their jaw and around 2,000 newtons at the front. Now, just to put that into perspective, a human bite strength is a feeble 900 to 1300 newtons. So, ouch if you're bitten by a bull shark. Okay, and now on to my really exciting special guest today. Um, obviously, all my guests are super exciting, um, but this one just 
titillated me a little bit more um, because it's all about corals and I just don't really know a lot about corals so I learned so much um, from this interview and I really hope you guys do too. So without further ado this is my interview with a Miss Marin Tor. She is a marine biologist currently studying at James Cook University in Queensland but she's originally from the States where she studied environmental science in New York. We met out in Madagascar on a conservation research project, where she was a research officer on the marine side of things, eventually managing it. After leaving Madagascar, she focused her career more specifically on corals and focused mostly on coral restoration, which she did for a few months in Florida before moving to the Maldives to lead a resort-based restoration project out there. She left there to undertake her master's at James Cook University in Australia, where she's just finishing that up now. So let's grab her for a coral-heavy chat. Hello. Hi. Oh, hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good, thanks. Very good. excited to be doing this. Yay, good. That's what I like to hear. <laughs> so um, I'm just I'm going to straight in then. Um, so I just yeah. did a little intro for you, just saying um, you're Marin, um, you're a marine biologist, you're studying at the moment over in Australia, um, but you're originally from the States where you studied there um, in New York, environmental science, and you've dived everywhere and anywhere <laughs> in the world. Um, trying. Trying to, trying to hit up every single patch of water that you can. <laughs> Uh, so the first question that I wanted to ask you um, was that, yeah, you've, so you've dived in the Maldives, Madagascar, Cambodia, um, Australia, etc., all these different places. Um, but what was your favourite place to dive in? Yeah, that's a hard question. <laughs> Starting in a good place. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard because there's some really good places that are good for different reasons. Um, I mean, the Maldives, I think, will kind of always have my heart. Um, you know, it's you can walk out your door and onto these nice reefs with fish. And, you know, if you get lucky, you get things like mantas and even whale sharks coming past. So oh, it's, wow. it's a, yeah, pretty amazing place. Um, but, you know, for me, my real passion is kind of the coral itself. And now that I've been here diving on the Great Barrier Reef um, and actually recently in Papua New Guinea, I think I think those two kind of take the cake for coral diversity and beauty and things like that. Yeah, that's amazing. Papua New Guinea. I didn't know that you'd, you'd dive there as well. Yeah, adding to the list. <laughs> Did that one <laughs> From, you just sort of touched on it there a little bit, um, that the coral is sort of like the reason as to why you love those places the most. Um, but what did the surveys that you did um, in each of those places in, in, in Australia and the work that you've been doing, what did you, the surveys sort of tell you about the reefs? Did it tell you good things, that everything's sort of, you know, going well and flourishing? Or did you find that things were um, sort of not so great and they were struggling a bit? Um, sort of what, what have you seen um, with the research that you've done? Um, it's a mixed bag at the moment. Yeah. Um, I mean, even so, I was actually out on the Great Barrier Reef in December, and even on that trip, you know, we got some reefs that were in really good condition. You know, kind of pristine level of really high coral cover and fish and everything. Um, mm -hmm. And then you know, you drive half an hour and you get reefs that are really struggling, really low coral cover. 
Um, and it's kind of happening around the world um, in the same sort of pattern that there's reefs that are doing really well and ones that aren't. Um, like where I was in the Maldives, the reason that I was there, which, you know, was good for me, but kind of unfortunate for the reefs itself was because I was doing restoration stuff on reefs that were struggling a bit um, that actually had pretty high mortality in terms of the coral itself in the last few years. Um, so it's it's hit and miss at the moment, um, but it's not um, kind of a an obvious thing. Um, even so, in reefs that may have been struggling and they've kind of lost a lot of their coral, you still get some really high fish diversity and abundance. Um, so it's not to say that, you know, just because they're lacking one thing that they're a dead system. Um, so, yeah, it's it's interesting to see at the moment. And that's kind of a big thing right now that people are trying to figure out why some reefs are doing better than others. Yeah, definitely. Um, and for, just just sort of for the listeners who might not know as much about corals um, as perhaps you do, <laughs> um, I want to give us sort of like a, a brief whistle-stop tour of how coral reef ecology sort of works. Um, so like, yeah, from the fish that live there and sort of thrive on the reefs, um, and to the corals themselves and maybe tell us a little bit about coral bleaching and what sort of that um, entails. So like maybe a healthy reef versus a not so healthy reef. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, so reefs are really complex systems. Um, it's estimated that there's probably about 9 million species that kind of use wow. reefs in some capacity or other. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. And um, you know every single one, don't you? Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I'll sit here and list them all. That would um, be a good episode. <laughs> um, yeah, but I mean, like, so saying that, um, coral reefs themselves only cover, you know, kind of less than 1% of the ocean floor. So there are these areas of really high biodiversity. Um, and that's, that's what kind of makes them really special is that you just get these huge amount of life in these kind of really concentrated areas. And, and there's kind of this, what I was saying with the complexity is that there's all these different species interactions on the reefs of, um, you know, different animals working together and, and needing to utilize different species for their own survival and things like that. And, and, reef ecology really just tries to understand those dynamics and kind of what sort of environmental factors might influence survival and mortality of different animals and and kind of how things interacting create these healthy systems and what you really want are these biodiverse systems that have you know a lot of different fish in different functional roles and invertebrates and different corals that play different functional roles in the ecosystem um so what you're really looking for is just this this diversity essentially um and you know even an individual species if if we end up losing one of those could have pretty big impacts to the rest of the community so it's it's really just trying to piece apart how it all fits together and and how it drives these processes to keep it healthy mm -hmm. The interplay of all the different organisms sort of keeping everything together but it's not necessarily so you touched on earlier like it's not necessarily a death knell if sort of one of them drops away like there is um possibility to sort of bring it back um to to health isn't it like sort of what you were talking about doing the restoration work in the Maldives um 
you told me that you went, you were transplanting corals um, and that you ended up transplanting around 3,000 corals to the reefs around the resort, um, which sounds amazing. Like that sounds like a really big number of, of um, corals to have sort of translocated back into position. Um, could you sort of tell us how that works exactly? Because I'm, I'm definitely not marine is not the marine world is not my area of expertise <laughs> at all um, so it'd be great if you could tell us a bit about how how that works like how how people figured out that this could work and and the success rate of it um and the work that you did out there in the Maldives yeah definitely um so like you kind of first mentioned and yeah like I said before you know if you kind of lose certain things here and there you're not necessarily going to lose the whole ecosystem um there's what researchers kind of call functional redundancy um, where a lot of species can actually kind of fill the same sort of role Um, but it's once you reach a point where they all start to disappear where you're kind of in trouble and um, that's where things like restoration start to come into the picture is when they've really reached a point that they need help to get back to even you know being a kind of productive system Um, so yeah restoration (laughs) there's a lot of different ways to do it and I could probably go on forever about it so I'll try and keep it (laughs) short but thorough um so the main way that people are doing it now and it's it's a very new field it's still kind of developing a lot um but one of the really widespread techniques that people are using is what's called coral gardening um so this is kind of a (laughs) two-step yeah yeah right (laughs) um but yeah it's this kind of two-step process um And I guess I should actually back up and probably explain this a little bit better. Um, So (laughs) corals themselves have their animals um, and they've got kind of two separate ways of reproducing. They can reproduce asexually, where if you break off a piece of it or a branch, that branch can actually just keep growing. It becomes a clone of, you know, its parent and it can just keep surviving. Mm. Um, And then they can also reproduce sexually where the colonies actually release a sperm and the egg and then they're fertilized in the water and then that larvae can land um, and you know that's kind of a new different genetic composition so that's you know a separate colony at that point but what coral gardening does is it tries to kind of take advantage of this asexual reproduction and propagation so they can actually take you know a single colony to begin with and break off a piece and it'll keep growing then break that one into further pieces and you know so on and so on and so on and you can actually end up with thousands and thousands of pieces of coral that's me um yeah so that's that's really what has kind of taken off in the restoration field and what people are doing um, pretty much all around the world at this point in the caribbean and in the indian ocean and the pacific it's it's pretty much going on everywhere um which is it's good to see and it's it's helped in a lot of cases I think there are definitely some drawbacks to it one of them being the fact that um, you know you've got this clone of the parent so it's potentially having impacts on genetic diversity and things like that Um, and if if that parent kind of isn't able to survive in the long run they may have the same sort of genetic disposition um, to also not survive but it's still very early so you know it's things that people are still trying to figure out Uh, but another way that people sorry a work in progress yeah definitely um but yeah the other way that people are trying to do it is actually take advantage of the um sexual reproduction where they actually collect a bunch of the um sperm and the eggs and or they take them and they fertilize them in the lab 
um, to just try and get a higher number of larvae that they can then kind of drop back onto the reef and you know, get them to land so that you just get more of them because there tends to be really high mortality in that kind of spawning releasing mm-hmm. phase when they release it into the water the fish and everything else like to eat them so you know trying to give them a little better chance <laughs> um, but yeah there's there's a lot going on in this field in terms of just trying to kind of increase the number of colonies that are on the reef um, in terms of kind of actual coral species and and individuals um, with the goal of just trying to kind of increase the amount of spawn that's then released later on so that the reef can kind of start to regenerate on its own and just accelerate recovery processes after those big degradation events um, and things like that. It gets to be pretty complicated. Um, They've actually got some stuff going on um, around where I am here actually doing assisted evolution where they're actually trying to take corals that look like they're going to be you know better in the long run and have better genetics and breed them and then put them back out so they're getting pretty in depth now more of a sort of unnatural selection like a yeah yeah it is a little bit well i just learned a hell of a lot about corals did not know um about the sperm and the egg release at all that's blown my mind that's really really We want to know even crazier bit about that is that they actually synchronize it. So there's in different areas of the world, it kind of happens at different times, but they all coordinate it for the same, you know, few nights after the full moon. And they kind oh of just, um, but yeah, they all just know when to do it at the same time. It's, it's ridiculous. That sounds it's very offensive. weird animals. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds almost like some kind of pagan ritual, like after the full moon, <laughs> yeah. they'll just go for it. <laughs> Oh, so I guess we've sort of spoken a little bit about the restoration side of things there. Um, so I suppose we have to talk about the beginning of it um, and why these degradation um, events happen and the big, the big bad that is climate change. Um, so I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about, about how climate change is affecting reefs and other stresses that they're facing that can lead to these events that mean they need to have these restoration efforts put into place. Yeah, this is the the kind of kicker with a lot of um, a lot of people working in reef studies these days is that it's just kind of getting more and more depressing. Um, <laughs> actually, not even reef studies; it's just conservation in general, isn't it? Um, but that's why you're here to bring a light to all of this. <laughs> uh, yeah, nice, nice. Thank you very much. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. Um, but yeah, so the big the big issue uh, that's kind of facing reefs now, um, yeah, is from climate change. You know, just the increasing temperatures around the world um, in the atmosphere is getting absorbed um, a lot by the ocean because it's kind of the big thermoregulator, um, and it doesn't really take much. You know, it only takes a few degrees of warming um, to kind of push corals past their limit. So. Generally, corals tend to live between about 18 to kind of 29, maybe up to 30 degrees Celsius. That's kind of their range, survival range. Um, and nowadays in the hotter summer months, it's, you know, the water temperature is getting up to 31. In places it can get up to 34, 35. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just kind of can't really survive in that Um, and that's really what leads to these big bleaching events um, that are starting to become more frequent and and kind of getting worse and worse Um, 
So it might go on for a little bit, but I can explain what coral bleaching is if you'd like. <laughs> yes, please, please do. Yeah. Um, so I guess, yeah, for this year, I probably need to explain a bit about coral biology. Um, so like I said, they are animals. So they've actually got tissue. They've got this calcium carbonate skeleton, so this hard skeleton, um, and then this tissue that is kind of over the top of it, and then these individual polyps that kind of sit in these cups and they just kind of grow out from there and secrete the skeleton beneath them um, mm. but the really kind of amazing thing about corals is that they've actually got this um, symbiotic relationship with this algae uh, that's called um, zooxanthellae but you know don't need to know that part <laughs> um, but that algae actually lives inside of their tissues um, and it's photosynthetic um, so it you know goes through this photosynthesis process and actually instead of keeping kind of the products of that the sugars and the amino acids and the nutrients it actually passes that on to the coral and that's how the coral gets a huge amount of their nutrients is is from that process um, and then the algae actually uses waste products like carbon dioxide from the coral itself in in their kind of photosynthetic process um, and it provides them shelter so they're not getting eaten by other animals around the reef so it's this really kind of crazy process um, and that algae itself is actually what gives the coral their colors so without that the tissue itself is just see-through mm -hmm. essentially it's just clear and you can kind of see the skeleton and when um when a coral is stressed, and I mean, the big issue now is with temperature, but there's other things that can cause it too, um, certain chemicals, and even, you know, if it's reaching below their thermal range, if it gets too cold, it can cause them to bleach. Um, but what happens is that the algae that's in there starts to kind of not function properly, um, and it starts kind of producing these toxic um, products that the coral can't really handle so it actually just expels the algae from its tissues okay. so when in this kind of actual bleaching process it's what's happening is that the coral is actually getting rid of this algae um, and then the tissue is kind of you know getting its natural clear color and you're just seeing th straight through to the white skeleton that's underneath mm -hmm. so the coral is actually still alive during this process um, it it can survive without this algae. It actually feeds um, with its tentacles as well. So it kind of grabs particles out of the water and, and can survive for a little while. Um, but because they get so much of their nutrition from the algae and because the temperature is just too warm, that after a few weeks, they usually tend to die and they just kind of get grown over by different types of turf algae and macroalgae that just do better in those kind of conditions. Um, so that's that's what it means when they've got these bleaching events is that, you know, these corals just can't really survive in this and they're getting rid of this algae that they really need in order to survive. And it just leaves them a bit too vulnerable in the long run. Mm -hmm. So like with, um, with the restoration efforts, if, a, if you capture corals sort of like in the early stages of this bleaching process, can you reverse that in a, in a single coral or is it sort of a bit of a death penalty? You can. No, it definitely it definitely doesn't necessarily mean that they'll die. Um, in really severe cases, they will. Mm -hmm. um, but it really, it kind of depends on the length of the stressor of whatever the issue is. Mm -hmm. um, so if it's kind of a short-term thing and whatever it is goes away, then yeah, the, the algae can actually go back inside of the tissue and they'll recover and get their color back. And it leaves them a bit 
um, susceptible to some other things just because, you know, if you're getting overheated and, you know, then you just kind mm. of a little bit, a little bit not handling everything else very well. But they've been through some. Um, so, yeah. Um, so they definitely can. It just it's hard to kind of control it, um, which is one of the big issues now is that there's just not a lot that we can do to actually prevent this from happening. Um, there's been a lot of talk of kind of some crazy things. Like they wanted to, yeah, like you'd be surprised. <laughs> um, there, there was talk recently about actually trying to put, you know, big fans into the ocean to like bring up cold water from the deep and okay. put these, yeah, release kind of particles into the air to make cloud cover and things like that. She's like, oh boy, mm-hmm. you guys have no idea what to do to you. <laughs> Is it that um, <laughs> Is it what? Is that obvious? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, we're, that's why kind of people are reaching a point where they're just getting a little bit desperate, I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is. And one thing that kind of in a very small scale, one thing that can work is even just shading them. Um, one of the big issues in the hotter months is, you know, not just temperature by itself, but even just the sunlight and the levels of irradiance that are hitting the coral can also you know, impact this bleaching so if you just give them a little bit of shade oh. they can do a bit better <laughs> give them a power ball. yeah <laughs> oh thank you for for sort of going into quite a lot of detail about that um i also wanted to talk to you about um your your research um because you're, you're now almost finished with your masters yay congratulations yeah thanks <laughs> Um, and you're, you're personally working on some research about how coral restoration affects other reef organisms and processes, um, which you sort of touched on earlier, sort of talking about how there's sort of such a big area of biodiversity and how everything's all interlinked and such. So obviously restoration will have sort of some kind of knock-on effect, and I guess you're looking at what that is. Um, obviously it's sort of like ongoing, so you can't really discuss results right now. <laughs> um, but I was wondering if you could tell us sort of um, how you got into it, how you wanted to to study this, your method and sort of your rationale behind the study. Yeah. Um, so this this is kind of a new development for me, kind of in the last year of where my focus has really gone. Um, but yeah, because it's such a new field, there's, you know, there's not a lot of research that's been published about it there is there's a fair amount that's about kind of the restoration process itself um that's really helped to kind of improve the methods and you know make sure that more of them are surviving in these kind of in the initial phases and once you transplant them and things like that um but there's not a lot on kind of long-term impacts and you know more broad scale impacts of the whole reef just because there haven't been projects that have been ongoing for long enough to really be able to see that um and yeah like you said you know everything is kind of connected so what we really kind of want to see and and what I'm really interested in now is whether putting individual corals back onto the reef is actually you know doing what we think it's going to do um so what I mean what people really want from it is to kind of increase larval production and keep fish populations at you know good levels and a good mix of species Um, because you need you need different types of fish on the reef things like herbivores that take away algae and 
um, different ones that live kind of in and amongst the coral and things like that. If if actually putting more corals onto the reef are having these effects and and actually trying to help the reef get back to a stable state that it was in before. Um, and right now we really don't know much about whether it's actually doing that or not. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. Um, so what I'm kind of interested in looking at, and I'll actually be presenting on this at a conference in July, which is exciting. Um, but looking, yeah, in Germany actually. But yeah, I'm kind of looking at whether. Um, you know, what, what's happening to the fish populations, what's happening to things like coral recruitment of whether, whether we're getting increases in the number of juveniles that are landing in the area, um, what's happening to the rest of the, you know, benthic substrate on the reef of um, if putting corals back is changing the other composition of corals that was remaining there before, or if it's helping to, you know, promote uh, growth or anything in them. Um, just just trying to understand a bit more about what this process is actually doing to the reef, I guess. Mm. So you're sort of at the forefront of this area of research, which is super exciting. Yeah, trying to be. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah it's, it's really good, I guess, for us, because when I was starting in the Maldives, we, you know, me and the other rest of the team that was there, we're just starting everything up so we kind of were able to do it how we wanted and, and get results and um, surveying in place for how we how we really wanted to do it which has been really great to actually kind of be able to monitor all of this stuff from start to finish and it's only two years after we've transplanted all of these so it's definitely still early days but mm -hmm. we're hoping for some good things. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And like the results that you get from the studies that you're doing at the moment, could that then potentially be taken to, well, worldwide, really, like reefs around the world? Yeah, that's that's what I'm hoping. Um, the other kind of big issue with restoration is that it seems to be very site specific mm -hmm. um, and even species specific. So the ones that we're using, the types of corals that we're using may not be ones that they're using everywhere so it may be even too that you know even just using this specific type might be having some effects that others may not or you know vice versa so it's you know we really don't know much at this point <laughs> about what's going on <laughs> but that's it you're opening the way for for more learning and and to figure out exactly what is happening and what we can do so yay you yeah, incredible that's, that's the goal <laughs> So what's the conference in Germany? Did you want to sort of plug that a little bit if anyone's <laughs> I'm not sure I do. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's the um, International Coral Reef. Oh, God, I'm going to do this. Um, society. Yeah. Um, it's called ICRS. Um, and it's in Germany in Bremen, of all places, um, from July 5th to the 9th. So if anyone is there and is interested, please come by and support me because I'm terrified. <laughs> I'm sure it will be a resounding success. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and I wanted to sort of ask as well, because um, obviously there's so many crazy features and crazy things under the ocean um, that, as I said, I don't, I don't know really much about and it blows my mind, like, all oh, what's down there. Um, so I wanted to ask you, like, what's your favourite 
species, um, be it be it a coral, be it you know a nudibranch or you know a quirk about seahorses or something, some crazy fun fact about what's under the sea. <laughs> yeah, I mean, of course, yeah, my favorite animal is probably going to be corals, yeah. but <laughs> I try and branch out a bit. <laughs> branch um, out, <laughs> actually, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um i do have a fun fact but i feel like it might be inappropriate <laughs> oh the more inappropriate the better i love it go for it <laughs> okay good um oh actually i've got two i'll start with my you know reasonable one okay. um which of course is about corals um but just you know to fill you in a little bit more about them because they are crazy cool um so they which i may not have actually mentioned like they're colonial animals so each colony is itself like thousands of individual polyps and the polyps themselves are the individual animals um so they all live together on this you know same structure however they do it if they're branching or making these massive mounds um you just get kind of thousands of them all living together and they can actually share resources amongst all of them so even if one's like not in a good position it still gets the same amount of nutrients and things like that and they can all communicate with each other so that you know if you're kind of going if you're on the reef wherever you are in the world and you go and you kind of waft over them gently don't touch them yeah. <laughs> um yeah. you'll see them like retract they'll pull their tentacles back in and you see it kind of throughout the whole area and around the colony and they actually can like communicate that you know something's there and get out of the way wow. um so yeah they're pretty crazy sounds like we could learn a lot yeah <laughs> learn how to get along yeah <laughs> Um, and yeah, so my more inappropriate fun fact <laughs> um, has to do with southern right whales, um, which are great animals, um, but they are believed to have um, some of the largest testicles of all of the animals <laughs> and combined the testicles actually weigh up to about one ton. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> that's like this that's like a that's like a car that's like my car yeah yeah imagine imagine that just you know a single <laughs> testicle the size of your car just happily swimming through the ocean wow <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. yeah so if you ever see one yeah enjoy <laughs> and, and know that you're, you're sort of looking at something quite magnificent there and quite unique so that yeah <laughs> Well, there are two of them. So oh my God. <laughs> well, now we've uh, talked a little bit about corals and testicles. Um, but <laughs> as you do. As you do. They go hand in hand. Yeah. <laughs> There's just a couple of questions that I ask everybody at the end of um, at the end of interviews, just some silly ones. Um, so I think, yeah, I sent these to you, so you've had a little time to, to maybe think about it. Um, the first one is, if you could have any animal adaptation, what would it be and why? Um, yeah, so this one came to me almost immediately, so that's probably a sign. Um, I, in um, like octopus and cuttlefish, um, they can actually change colors like instantaneously because of these chromatophores that they have in their skin where they can like retract and expand them. So they can pretty much, you know, be whatever they want, whenever they want. And that's what I want. I can just blend into anything, anywhere. Very cool. And yeah, 
be whatever color and then if I see somebody that I don't want to talk to I can just you know blend into the bush and then just walk on past I'm a tree (laughs) (laughs) yeah I saw the video um that was released oh gosh a few months ago now but it was an octopus asleep and like rapidly changing colors as it was dreaming which was really really cool um so crazy yeah. <laughs> they're animals like I'm a bit I'm a bit obsessed slash scared of their capabilities <laughs> I know they like I really think that they're so much smarter than we are oh yeah 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 just wait until they make it onto land then we're really in trouble I know you know that some of them actually can I mean not like you know forever but some of them can actually like go out of the water and crawl across land <laughs> into other puddles yeah they're insane and um so my final question which it seems to be a a bit of a difficult one for a lot of people um but um yeah it is who would play you in a movie of your life yeah I'm glad you sent this one to me beforehand (laughs) because like you said I had no idea for a while (laughs) I thought it was probably the toughest question yeah (laughs) (laughs) but I finally settled on Kristen Wiig because I think she's just kind of weird enough and funny <laughs> enough because you know I'm hilarious okay, um, yeah. that she yeah I think she'd be good yeah I'm not sure she's sarcastic enough but we can train her up a bit yeah she could spend you know some time with you and sort of method act a little bit live a few days in your life and get yeah exactly exactly <laughs> <laughs> I can't thank you enough for your time um, for talking to us about corals. I I have just learned an insane amount um, and corals might be my new favourite animal. Um, (laughs) Yay! And I think that's that's the takeaway message for everyone for this episode. Corals are animals. (laughs) Yeah, but it kind of is though. You'd be surprised how many people don't actually know that. Yeah, yeah, it's mad. if If you learn anything from this, it's that and that southern right whales have huge testicles (laughs) yeah (laughs) those are the takeaways so i think we'll leave it on those two messages (laughs) (laughs) yeah thank you for having me this was great no problem thank you so much and i will um if you want to follow marin and um all of her wonderful pictures of corals you can find you on instagram can't you a coral a day um Yes, go and check it out. They're beautiful. You can see all the different ones that I love. Yeah, um, and I'll put that a link to that in the show notes. Um, so we've got you there and can keep up to date with like, all your coral buddies. Um, yeah, Ooh. thank you so much. All my friends. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you for your time. It's been, it's been, yeah, so interesting for me. So, yeah, so interesting for, for the listeners as well. So thank you. Oh, good. I'm glad. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you again. You too. Uh, Okay. I'll wrap it up here. (laughs) All right. Take care. Bye. Thank you very much for joining me once again on. Uh, a new episode of Turn on the Light. I hope you enjoyed the story of the Cabo Pulmo National Park and I really hope you enjoyed listening to Marin talk all about corals. Um, I know I certainly did. Um, So your takeaway message from this episode is a coral is an animal and uh, stay safe, stay positive and uh, lots of love to everyone. I'll speak to you all again in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye.
And remember that hope can be found even in the darkest of times if only one remembers to turn on the light.